uh, kids are released to children's church. Try not to knock over the ushers, though. That would be really sad. Or exciting, depending on how that goes. Um, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I'm grateful that you capture our attention in worship. You capture our attention every time we decide to do what to do with what we have and who we are. Um, so I pray, would you capture our attention uh, as we think about the words that have been left about you and from you. To you be the honor and glory forever, Lord. Amen. I love the Gospels. Uh, not just the gospel story, but I actually love the texts of the gospels. And in InterVarsity, we have a particular fascination and obsession with the gospel of Mark. In part, I think Mark is the most um, active and um, busy gospel. Jesus talks a lot less in Mark than he does in some of the other gospels. I find John very chatty, but in Mark, he's just going to do things, which makes it easy to teach it to college students, because while they're happy to listen to people talk, they love watching what people do. Um, Mark's great as a gospel um, because Jesus doesn't explain who he is in the beginning. He's always hiding it. And when people finally announce who he is in the first eight chapters, Jesus tells them to be quiet until they have a chance to discover more fully who he is. Mark's great because um, it forces you to confront hard truths about the gospel. And because Mark is such a great text, we actually have entire week-long programs devoted to the gospel of Mark. And so every summer, among our leadership training, small group leader training, um, and other programs that we run, we run a one-week in-depth Bible study of the first eight chapters of Mark. And literally, students are spending five to six hours a day just working their way through the gospel, or at least the first eight chapters, but that's as far as you can get in five or six days. Well, last summer, as I went up to teach one of the sessions in that track, they have their um, Bible study manuscripts in front of them. They've been working all week. One of the students pops up and says, I don't think I like Jesus anymore. <laughs> now, this is not the response I usually want when I'm introducing people to Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Another student immediately popped up, I'm not even sure I want to follow a Jesus like this. As a professional Christian designed to help people to become followers of Jesus, I was beginning to be a bit disturbed, but what I appreciated was they were wrestling with a true response to who Jesus was. As my colleague, who was actually in charge of this track and had led them to this point where I had to pick things up, even though a lot of these students grew up in the church, they, weren't really, they were really seeing Jesus for the first time. And they weren't sure they liked what they saw. I think sometimes I like Jesus so much that I don't actually listen to what he has to say or observe what he has to do. Do you have any friends like that who you really enjoy? You have a great time with them, but as soon as somebody outside of your friendship comes in, you can watch across their face this look of, why are we hanging out with this person again? Because what you accept as endearing and quirky, they find obnoxious. What you find is, oh, that's just my friend. They just think this is unacceptable behavior. It's what we do graciously in families and often in churches, but it takes somebody coming from outside the system to actually point out, 
I don't know why we're spending time with this person. And I think the same thing happens with Jesus. That we love Jesus. We like hanging out with Jesus. We like listening to Jesus. And I think because of our familiarity, sometimes we don't actually see the Jesus that everyone else seems to see. And I think what this text does, especially the way that this passage has been laid out, forces us to confront that. It challenges us not to like Jesus so much that we don't pay attention. So I'm going to start two verses earlier than our scripture reading, because it seems like that's really the context. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, and he's been talking for quite a while in Matthew. Again, it's why I like Mark. But he's been going on and on. When he finishes saying all these things, which we'll come back to later, he says to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then, just as Jesus has predicted, Matthew cuts the scene. Then the chief priests and the elders right after Jesus says this, gathered in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among these people. What strikes me about Jesus is that you have an incredible sense throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, which we've been following since early December, that Jesus intentionally pursues the way of the cross, and he's firmly in control of the events that are confronting him. There's no sense that Jesus gets caught up in current events or in history where all of a sudden he finds himself in a place where death is the only alternative. There's no sense that he feels powerless against the high priests or the elders or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. But from the point of the transfiguration, which I think you looked at last week to this point, Jesus has uncompromisingly, insistently said, I have come to die. I will be handed over and they will kill me. And every time he explains how they're going to kill him, he becomes more explicit and more determined that this is where he needs to be. Such that even at the very beginning of his, of his explanation of where he's going to go, when Peter says, oh, let that never happen, Jesus is so clear of where he needs to go and what he needs to do that he looks at his, probably his best friend, the one whom he said, your confession of who I am will be the foundation of the church. He says, get behind me, Satan. I know where I am going. I know where I will end up. And I've chosen this from the very beginning. What's fascinating to me is that in these first two verses, Jesus chooses the time and identifies the means through which he's going to die. It's going to be in two days during the Passover, and it's going to be a crucifixion. It's like a game of Clue where he knows exactly how it's begun. This means I think we can put aside any notion that Jesus is a victim in this process. He's not a victim of the Roman legions that lead him to his death. He's not a victim of the Jewish chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law and the Sanhedrin who conspire toward his death. He's not the victim of a God who sends him to die in our place and on our behalf as if he were some celestially, cosmically abused child. This is a person, our God and a human being, who willingly chooses and participates in this this fate Because I believe that in the process of salvation, the Trinity is working together. The Father proposes the plan, the Son willingly embraces it and puts it into practice, and the Holy Spirit then kicks it off into life in our own hearts. It's the Trinity working together and making themselves known in the process of salvation. Jesus isn't a victim, nor is he passive in this process. He's very active. And what strikes me is that the timing is his, In two days, during the Passover, when the people of Israel are celebrating God's first great redemption of a people out of slavery and bondage through the sacrificial death of a lamb, 
The timing is his and the means are his. A crucifixion where he will hang on a cross, reminding everyone who looks on what the Old Testament teaches and what Paul celebrates is that, celebrates that everyone who hangs on the tree is cursed, but cursed in our behalf and in our place so that we would have freedom. And Jesus sets this time and this very public means of death, and immediately you see how futile the plans of the chief priests and elders are. What they say is, let's not kill him during the Passover festival. That will just disturb everyone and cause a riot. We're going to wait and do it in a quiet way where nobody's going to even notice or see. We're just going to take him out so that the Galileans gathered here don't get irritated or angry. And you see, even before they begin to conspire, Jesus is in control. Two days, in a public way, that's how it's going to happen. Jesus is very intentional about how he's going about this. And the way that Matthew tells this story, including um, the story of this woman who breaks an alabaster jar of perfume over Jesus' head, proves how intentional this all is. The structure of this passage is a little bit of what they call an inclusio. Um, it's a sandwich. Jesus announces he's going to die. Then you have the chief priest conspiring against Jesus, a woman preparing Jesus for his burial before his friends really understand what's going to go on, and then Judas conspiring with the chief priests on how it's going to happen. And whenever the um, biblical writers do this, Mark loves doing this, but it happens in all the Gospels. It happens throughout uh, Old Testament. It happens a lot in the Psalms. Whenever you have story A being interrupted by story B, then story A being um, picked up again, what's happening in story B, the center of the story, explains everything that's happening. It's the most important thing to know. It's the key point to pay attention to. So there's plotting for his death, preparation for his death, and plotting for his death again. When this woman, who goes unnamed in this passage, at least as Matthew tells the story, takes this um, alabaster jar, and it probably wasn't a big jar. It was probably a small vial, um, a small um, vase, and breaks this oil, this perfume over his head. If you were a listener at the time, if you were a reader of the text, what you would have thought is she's anointing him to be the Messiah. Right? Because the word Messiah means the anointed one. It's what you did with kings, it's what you did with prophets, and it's what God did with Jesus during the baptism, which is now being lived out in Jerusalem in the capital as somebody breaks oil over his head and acknowledges you are the one in whom the Holy Spirit resides. You are the one who's been chosen by God set apart for him, which is what Messiah um, entails. And even though that's what the listeners and readers would have understood, it's what people watching might have assumed. She's anointing this king who rode in triumph on Palm Sunday into the city. Jesus points out that's not the most important thing that's happening. Less important is his um, title of Messiah or being anointed. More important is she's preparing me for my death. More important than what I... More important than the title I hold is how I'm going to die, why I'm going to die, and what I will accomplish because I am dying. Jesus knew criminals didn't receive a proper burial. And even though the other Gospels will point out that he did, it wasn't to be assumed at this point. And he says, this woman is living out the reality of what I'm going to experience. She's preparing me for what is to come. What strikes me about Jesus and the fact that what this woman does prepares Jesus for what 
the people are plotting on either side of the story is that even though the events seem to be moving out of control if you're one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus has come into Jerusalem with great opposition. People are plotting against his life. You can feel the political tension mounting. There's actually somebody about to betray him from within his inner circle. Nothing is out of control. Jesus has predicted what's going to happen. He's decided how it's going to happen. It's happening exactly as he intended. Even though people are acting from both the worst and the best motives, God's orchestrated their individual parts, which reflect what they want to do and who they are, into a symphony which he conducts and he controls. The tune is his, the tempo is his, and the outcome is his. Which is actually appropriate to reflect on this Sunday. It's the beginning of Purim. It's a Jewish festival, um, which is often celebrated by people dressing in costume, telling jokes and funny stories. At the University of Chicago, it's the cause of the Latke Hamantaschen debate, which has gone on for 50 years. If you know, Hamantaschen are, is a Jewish pastry, which is a kind of tri-cornered because it's supposed to remind people of the hat, often stuffed with either prunes or apricots. And a latke is a potato pancake. And over 50 years, the um, Hillel Society at the University of Chicago has held the annual Latka Hamantaschen debates. They usually find the two most prominent professors that they can find that day, and they each, using their academic fields of specialty, argue for the superiority of one over the other. It ends with a great feast. But Purim reminds us of a period in Israel's history when things seemed firmly out of control, and yet God was supremely in charge. You see, there was this really rich, powerful man who got bored with his wife. And so he decided to hook up with a beauty contestant. She became a trophy wife. We call her Esther. And far from being a quiet, supportive trophy wife of a man who thought women were there to be bought and sold, as Mordecai reminds her, for such a time as this, maybe you've come into a place like this to save the Jews from the people who would oppress them. And even though the entire universe seems to be wheeling out of control for the people of Israel, because of a man's fickle commitment to his first wife, because of a woman's unique beauty and ability to attract attention at a beauty pageant, because of an uncle who'd been divinely placed in her life from her childhood, who raised her up to trust that God was sovereignly in control, because of the way the Holy Spirit had wired her so that when she had an opportunity, she had the courage to take it rather than save herself. Events weren't out of control at all. God accomplished a marvelous salvation. And so, throughout the world, Jews dress up in funny costumes, tell jokes to one another, tell stories, and maybe off, even offer an Academy Award for the worst-dressed person in the room. Jesus doesn't intentionally pursue the cross. I think he intentionally provokes two very different kinds of responses. How does one person generate both death, death threats and extravagantly sacrificial acts of devotion all at the same time? The leaders of the people are gathering at the holiest time of the year to plot the politically motivated killing of a religious leader. Right? It would be like the leaders of the world gathering right before Christmas saying, how do we knock off the Pope and Billy Graham simultaneously? And if Mother Teresa, we'd do her off right now too. But let's not do it Christmas Eve. That would be tacky. <laughs> how does one man generate that response as well as a response of a woman destroying probably what's a family heirloom? The spice that was in, um, that uh, fueled that perfume was probably imported from India, which is a tremendous undertaking at 30 AD. It represented a year's wages, the disciples point out later. 
a year's wages, not of a poor family, but really of a middle class family, if they were carrying this kind of thing around. It probably was her dowry or her inheritance. It may have been her family's chief asset, the thing that they were holding against hope in times of trouble. That if something were to go wrong for their family, if something catastrophic were to happen, they'd always have that nest egg. A year's salary captured in a jar of perfume. And as she approaches Jesus, a year's salary seems so little, seems so appropriate, that rather than sell it and offer that money to Jesus so that he could do something productive with it, she thinks, the only thing I can do is offer it to him. Break it over his head so that Jesus' fragrance fills the room, which draws attention to him and who he is and what he's about to do. Whether she realizes it or not, she honors him as the one who's about to die. How does one man do that? Matthew's very intentional in setting these two stories in opposition to each other, isn't he? Jesus predicts he's going to die, and he points out some people are plotting to kill me, and some people have begun to worship me. Jesus himself is the polarizing factor, isn't he? I think it's a mistake for us to assume that the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees didn't understand what Jesus was doing. That if they had just gotten it, they would have become followers of his too. I think they understood precisely what Jesus was doing. I think they absolutely understood what he was about, and so did the woman. You see, the chief priests and elders realized Jesus is not just a nice moral teacher wandering around the countryside. He's not just living a life, a great moral example of love. You don't need to kill nice people. The chief writer for Hallmark Cards has never been in danger. No contract will be taken out on their life. The only people who need to be killed are dangerous people. And the chief priests and elders realized that Jesus was dangerous. Because he was overturning everything they understood about the world and announcing a new world order had begun. He walked in and said, the God you think you worship, the God that you've been following since the time of Moses is best saw, seen in me. And I'm doing only those things that that God could do. You, the people of Israel, who've had your identity shaped and preserved, safe and secure for several thousand years as God redeemed you out of Egypt into the promised land and uh, kept you through the exile, you're no longer central to what God is going to do, but he's going to use you merely as the seed for something that he's intending to do for every person around the world. And what made you special no longer is going to be special just for you. It's going to be shared widely, abundantly, and profligately. The temple with which you meet God, the place which is the most important place for you to understand who your God is and who we are as a people, irrelevant. And how you've pursued God so far, the rules and the regulations, the traditions, as much as they've pointed you, God, have pointed you toward God, have gotten in your way. Let him go. And if you thought you tried hard before, you haven't even seen trying yet. Think about what he's just said to them if you've looked at the chapters 24 and 25. He's been talking about the wedding banquet, and then beginning in chapter 3, he, he points out, you, the leaders of the people, you stink, you're dead, you're like vipers. You're leading people astray. And he's doing this publicly in front of all the people, right? He's decrying the government and the religious institutions around them. And then if that weren't enough, he looks at the entire people of Jerusalem and says, ah, oh, if you could just get it. 
but you're blind and you're clueless. I'm going to destroy this temple and make it over. The world is going to end in every way that you can imagine. The temple is going to be desecrated. And if only you knew who had come to you, you'd make sense of this, but you don't. By the time you get to chapter 25, he tells three stories in a row of people who should have gotten it but don't. Ten bridesmaids, five of whom are prepared, five of whom aren't. People who had been given gifts and opportunities who never took advantage of them but let them lie fallow. And who should be cast into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. His followers, his people gather before him and God stands and goes, half of you over there, I don't even know who you are. You haven't done the very things I asked you to do. There's a reason Jesus was killed. There was good reasons for Jesus to be killed. There were right reasons if you were in charge, if you were safe, if you were secure that Jesus should have been killed. When Jesus enters the scene, he intentionally provokes these two different responses because there's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no room for apathy nor is there room for kind of quiet appreciation and just deep like. Jesus either wants hate or he wants love. He either wants absolute obedience or he wants rejection. There's nothing in the middle where you're able to just appreciate him for who he is. Everything's relativized once Jesus is in play. You notice that even in the contrast between what the woman offers and what Judas decides to take. The woman who loves Jesus passionately, thoroughly, absolutely, wholeheartedly gives over an entire year's wages of a middle-class incomes family in order to offer Jesus a temporary one-shot thing that will show her honor to him, which will be otherwise forgotten in just a few hours, the smell of which will dissipate after a day. But it was worth it to her. 360 denarii worth. Judas just trades Jesus in for 30. The amount that you'd pay a slave owner if you accidentally killed their slave. Chump change. What strikes me is that you begin to get a sense right there, right? A 30-second act of devotion is worth a full year of my income. Betraying a man that I followed is only worth a month's wages. And you begin to see how everything begins to turn. All values are relativized around Jesus. What's striking me on how deeply things are relativized, that even though Jesus points out this woman will be remembered for all of eternity, wherever the gospel is preached for Acts, her name's not even recorded in Matthew. Less important is who this woman is than how she responds to Jesus. What will be remembered is not her identity, who she was, or her history. What will be remembered, as far as Matthew is concerned, is that she gave everything to Jesus and prepared him for his death. I think Jesus demands, with that same intentionally that he planned his own death and provoked a response to the people of Israel at the time, that we respond similarly as well. The reality is, I think, if we're not troubled by some of the things that Jesus says and does, then maybe we aren't paying attention. We've fallen into a comfortable long-term friendship with him, and some of the, what we like to say in intervarsity, because we like to be nice and not mean, the angular nature of Jesus' personality seems to have rubbed off on us. Jesus was more than a great moral teacher. He was more than the great example of a life lived in love. Think about the things that he says that are still true as he confronts us. When he bids us, come follow me, do we, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer here, 
and he bids us come to die. When he pursues a disciple and says, come follow him, and he says, let me first bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. When Jesus is invited, invites another man to follow him, he says, look, I just have a piece of land. I need to check on my property. As soon as I know it's good, I'll follow you. Jesus says, anybody who looks back isn't worthy of following me. Sell all you have, leave all you have, hate your family compared to your love for me. And I realize it's easy for us at, in the church to almost relativize those and make those easier. Well, he doesn't really mean hate your family. I mean, he just means in contrast to how much we love him, we're not supposed to like them quite as much. But the reality is he's calling us to make a choice. The same God who asked Abraham, are you willing to sacrifice your son or not? And waits until Abraham has the knife in his hand and is about to plunge it into his son's heart is the same God who asks us, do you want to follow me or not? The same God who approached the rich young ruler and said, sell everything that you have, is the same God who confronts all of us who, frankly, in almost any other place in the world would be considered pretty rich and pretty powerful with the same message. Now, Jesus didn't challenge everyone with that same message. Perhaps to those of us who are rich and secure, the challenge might be more similar than we would like to hear. Does Jesus confront us or comfort us, rebuke us or renew us, cherish us or chasten us? I want to suggest that if we pay attention to the Jesus that you see in the Gospels, he does both. And if we find ourselves more frequently comforted than confronted, we need to step back and pay attention. Jesus seems to dismiss apathy and satisfaction as possible options when you deal with him. He would rather that we reject him than just merely quietly appreciate him. He demands that we worship him and not merely observe him. It's wholehearted allegiance or nothing. You get a picture of that right at the end in the book of Revelation when he talks to the church at Laodicea, a rich church, a comfortable church, where he says, your lukewarmness, your soothing appreciation for me nauseates me to the point that I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Often, um, I get a picture of this, and I may have read this letter before, but I always think back to this one letter that a young student in Mexico City wrote to his fiance. He was a communist, and he wrote, was writing to break off his engagement. And this is what he says, but I think you capture something of that passion and single-mindedness that we're talking about. He says, look, we communists suffer many casualties. We are those whom they shoot, hang, lynch, tar and feather, imprison, slander, fire from our jobs, and whose lives people make miserable in every way possible. Some of us are killed or imprisoned. We live in poverty. From what we earn, we turn over to the party every cent, which we do not absolutely need to live. We communists neither have time nor money to go to movies very often, nor for concerts, nor for beautiful homes and new cars. They call us fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one supreme factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life that money could not buy. We have a cause to fight for, a specific goal in life. We lose our insignificant identities in a great river of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or if our egos seem bruised through subordination to the party, we are amply rewarded. And the thought that all of us, even though it be in a very small way, are contributing something new and better for humanity. There's only one thing about which I'm in earnest. It's the communist cause. It's my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my meat, and my drink. 
I work at it by day and dream of it by night. Its control over me grows greater with the passage of time. Therefore, I cannot have a friend, a lover, or even a conversation without relating them to this power that animates and controls my life. I measure people, books, ideas, and deeds according to the way they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail for my ideas, and if need be, I am ready to face death. I don't know about you, but there's something in my heart that longs to have that kind of passion, drive, and focus. What grieves me is that this young student who was writing, I think sometime in the 1970s, gave his life to something which time and history have proven was supremely unable to achieve what he hoped it would. Actually, he gave his life and his passion to something which actually caused more destruction than ever raised hope. How much more so as you encounter Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, who lived a perfect life, who taught a revolutionary message, who died in our place and on our behalf, and then was vindicated by God by being raised again and who now reigns with God. How much more so does Jesus demand that we respond either with absolute obedience and love or with hatred and rejection? I think back to those students who really struggled with encountering Jesus for the first time in the Gospel of Mark when they read it carefully as adults and not just as a series of disconnected Bible stories told with a flannel graph Jesus. And they came to a clear understanding, I think, of who he is. One student captured it well. He wrote in his evaluation form at the end of the week, before I glossed over or ignored when Jesus was rude or harsh, but here I was forced to face it and comes to terms with a Jesus who didn't walk around passing out rainbows and sunshine, but who told the uncompromising truth. May we encounter that Jesus as we meet together in fellowship, as we pray, as we study scripture. I believe the longer we encounter him, he's worthy of our absolute devotion, our wholehearted response, our sacrificial offering of lives, talent, and time. But I think a true choice is maybe he demands too much, and it would be more honest to reject than just to ignore. Let me pray for us. Startle us, Lord, with who Jesus is. Save us from becoming overly familiar, that we make Jesus into our own image, to repeat truths which comfort or which merely um, renew. May his word become sharp to us like a double-edged sword so that we're brought to life. And if you cut, Lord, may you cut like a surgeon, digging out what is unhealthy <clears throat> and bring wholeness to places that are diseased. May we fall in love with the full picture of who Jesus is. And then may our offering be something which is remembered, if not by others, then by you, Lord, to the very end of this age. Amen. Thank you, Greg. As you call us our attention, desire to know.